นโมทัสสะบุคุวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคุวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคุวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดมังสังฆังนมัสสะเราเห็นว่าเป็นสิ่งที่มนุษย์ทำ
return what is potentially very beautiful and very agreeable into something that is not. And uh, even our teacher, the Buddha, uh, according to the scriptures, recorded uh, teachings that the Buddha gave himself and pointed out that that he himself uh, lived a life of convenience and and privilege and good fortune, uh, surrounded by all sorts of uh, beauty and uh, probably had the most beautiful friends and and went to you know listen to really really good music and had really good concerts available and and the best food and uh, on the level of uh, sensuality it was as good as it got but then he reached a stage in his life where he realized that actually all these sense treats uh, don't they're not reliable yeah. Yeah. and in fact if we rely on them if we if we uh, if we spend all of our effort trying to be happy by giving ourselves sense treats then we're destined for disappointment and uh, indeed this is uh, uh, later on the Buddha after his realization after his liberation after his enlightenment went on to speak about how because we don't understand the world of sense objects and uh, the sight, sound, smell, taste, touches and mental impressions and, and then also our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind because we don't see clearly the world of the senses this is why this is why we do what we do that turns something that is potentially very beautiful and agreeable into something that's not. And in his teaching, he encouraged us uh, over and over again to study this. This is our field of study. Yes, we study books and we listen to teachings and so on. That has got its place. But more important than that is to study our senses. To study what happens when we see sense, see sights and hear sounds and uh, smell fragrances and taste and touch and uh, cognize. Yeah. What, what, what happens at that point of contact? What is the potential? Mm-hmm. How do we make the decisions we make and what are the consequences? So if we uh, have uh, even a beginner's understanding of the Buddha's teachings, we we appreciate this this aspect that uh, the world of the senses is not an enemy, it's not something that we just judge and and criticize and say, well, we haven't got enough beautiful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches of mental impressions and and we put effort into trying to develop more. We know that that's that's a not going to give us what we're looking for. We need to be more subtle in our investigations. We understand that the Buddha lived in the same world as we do and was perfectly free. He's completely, irreversibly liberated from any inclination to spoil the opportunity to live a beautiful life. 
from the point of the Buddhist enlightenment onwards, although there were periods which were very challenging, physical privation, not having enough food, physical difficulties, getting old and pain, you know, relational struggles, people trying to kill him and accusing him of nasty things. None of that left any negative impression on the Buddha's consciousness because of what? Because he had studied, because he had seen, he had seen the truth, the actuality, the reality of the sensory world. Somebody was relating to me recently a story of, a sad story of the, how their pet cat uh, that they've had for a good while uh, is not recovering from an injury it's had on one of its legs. It's, I don't know how it got the injury, but a, a substantial part of the flesh was missing and despite uh, a lot of attention from the vet and lots of lotions and potions and, and medications and care and attention and kindness. Uh, uh, this uh, little cat, once the healing uh, gets to a certain point uh, and a scab forms, the, the cat just it can't help but scratch. And as we will know... Uh, you know, that healing process is interrupted and back to square one again. And it's an unpleasant thing to observe. And, yeah. Well, we have, um, we're familiar with the phenomena, yeah. but if we get more subtle, we will see that we're not necessarily completely free from uh, the same unintelligent reactions. So we, we appreciate that this this cat, lovely as it is, doesn't have sufficient intelligence to be able to rise above this reaction. Yeah. Reacting to the impulse to scratch uh, is not clever. And, and you can tell the cat <laughs> to stop doing it, but it doesn't get the message. Um, cat doesn't, it's not clever enough and yeah. well potentially we do have the intelligence, we do have the potential to rise above these reactions and, and this is part of what the Buddha was encouraging us to do in our, in our cultivation of the spiritual faculties and this, this journey, this path to learn from the sensory experiences yeah. when we see things and we get fooled fooled by the way things appear to be. If you're crossing a desert and suffering from thirst and, and you really want water and you see what looks like water, and if you're uninformed about the nature of mirage, you... Relate to that impression as if it's water, and you run after the mirage, thinking that this shimmering in the distance has got to be a lake, and you're going to be saved. And unfortunately, uh, exhaust yourself even quicker than you would have otherwise, because 
relating to an impression, a visual impression. It looks like, it really looks like water. It absolutely does look like water, and you're really thirsty. And if we have an uninformed relationship to that impression, that visual impression, uh, then we actually uh, create more suffering. Or as I've often mentioned, you know, the example of a rainbow. It really looks like something, and children, uninformed people, really believe that there is something, and and uh, I mean that's got to be there's got to be something there. We've got to be something wonderful. It's so beautiful, that amazing thing. So we go running after the rainbow, trying to get to the essence of the rainbow, the source of the rainbow. And of course, uh, the closer you get, the the more you realise actually, it's it's an optical illusion. It's the way light refracted uh, in a particular way produces that phenomenon. And so we cease running after rainbows because we've learned. But there are other impressions that we run after assuming the way things appear to be. Or again, the impression like I often think about uh, those black unappealing bananas that sometimes get put out at the meal right next to the the very beautiful spotless yellow bananas but if you're clever you know that okay that that manky looking banana doesn't appear so so uh, so good but that's actually that's the sweet one probably yeah yeah so the way things appear to be visually or when we hear things, the way sound can fool us. Mm. Remember being taken to visit somebody's house, and um, while we were there, this uh, elderly lady sat down at the piano and started playing some some uh, very beautiful music. And it was I don't know whether it was Brahms or Bach or. And I hadn't, at that stage um, in my life as a monk, I hadn't heard music for a very long time, certainly nothing like that. And maybe where I was at in myself or the way she played or the piece of music itself, but just sitting there in this person's house, these tears started streaming down my face. It was like, I didn't exactly become completely blubbering, but... I really had to work hard not to. It was just this intense, overpowering of emotions. And so, what's going on here? I felt like a complete wally sitting in this person's house, you know, tears streaming down my face. It's just because a sound? I mean, it was just, I looked as if my best friend had just died. And nothing had happened. It was just little Brahms piano music. Sounds can really uh, have a very strong, very strong uh, effect on us. The, the senses, if we're not alert to the reality, then we react in ways that can surprise us. And one of my favorite Greek myths, not that I'm well studied in Greek myths, but uh, the Odyssey that many of you will be familiar with, Odysseus decides that he wants to hear the sound of the sirens. Mm. According to the story, 
He's been alerted to the risk of sailing past this particular island and has been told that these um, beautiful maidens appear to be singing these utterly, utterly beautiful songs uh, and they beckon you towards the island uh, and you can't resist it. It's so beautiful. The problem being that, in reality, these beautiful maidens are actually two monsters. And all they do once you crash on the rocks is they kill you. And, and that's the landscape of the island. Once you get closer, you realise it's strewn with rotting corpses. Very unappealing, very unattractive. But once you're caught in the appearance of the beautiful sound of the siren singing, you can't resist it. It's just too alluring. But Odysseus, or Ulysses, as some might have heard him called, and decided he really wanted to hear this. So the deal was that the, the rowers, those rowing the boat that he was on, were instructed very firmly by Odysseus, those of you that remember the story, instructed to fill their ears with wax so they couldn't hear it. They wouldn't hear the sound of the sirens, so they wouldn't be tempted to go towards the island. And before they even got near the island, what they had to do was to bind Odysseus or Ulysses to the mast, bind him really tight. And even if he started gesticulating and ordering these oarsmen to drive to to row towards the island, all they had to do was to bind him tighter to the mast because he really got interested in the reality of being able to hear uh, the beauty of these sirens but not be drawn and destroyed by them. So as was requested, what happened, and the oarsmen refused to respond to his maniacal gesticulating and just bound him tighter to the mast and kept rowing and they passed the island successfully and Odysseus managed to hear the beauty of the sirens without being drawn and destroyed by them. I personally like to think, I don't know if this is what uh, uh, language experts would say and I think uh, this is not my own idea but wherever it came from I do like to think that this image of being being lashed or strapped to the mast is a is a um, a fitting approximation of, of what is meant by the word religion. Mm. The origin of that word being religio, which means to to bind or to tie to. I mean, uh, religious training is about uh, binding ourselves to certain structures so that we can encounter the intensity of the sensory world but without being defined by it. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the touches and mental impressions, yes, they impact on the the ears, eyes, nose, tongue, body and mind. But if we're sufficiently secure in our being bound to the training and to the structures of the spiritual exercises, religious life, then we can survive the ordeal without being defined by it, without being destroyed by it. 
So we, we all would know what it's like to be fooled by the way things sound or appear. You know, somebody insults us, somebody shouts abuse, or in the context of technology, somebody sends out a, an utterly offensive tweet on Twitter about us and we read it or we, we hear the insult and we get really hurt, cut to the quick. You know, what a horrible thing to say. We lose sleep over it and worry about how we could respond to this horrible insult, this accusation that's been made. And then somebody points out, well, didn't you know that person? They're on serious medication for a severe mental illness. I mean, nobody listens to anything they say. And immediately it's gone. Finished. End of story. No problem. Uh, well, obviously, you don't pay anything. To well, it never was a problem. Not in actuality, but because we weren't living in accordance with actuality, we were living in accordance with the drama that we've created around the things we see, hear, smell, taste, touch and cognize, the sense objects. We were caught in the drama of samsara, to use Buddhist speak. We assumed all sorts of things that weren't true and created something that wasn't beautiful out of something that was you know, just sound. Mm. Smelling, yeah. get fooled by smells. Mm. You know, if you know the fruit durian, those of you that have been to Asia will know that durian is a a really delicious fruit, one of the most delicious fruits to eat, especially if it's eaten with ice cream. Durian is, durian is so delicious. But it smells so bad that it's banned in some places. You go some hotels in Singapore, it's illegal to uh, take durian fruit in. It stinks like a sewer or decomposing corpses. I mean, not this mild offensive smell, it really stinks. Yeah. Flavors, we can be fooled by things. All of us know what that's like with our particularly competent cooks in the monastery. Once you start eating, you want to just keep eating more. We can be fooled. Our senses tell us one thing, but we can't afford to really believe them. Now, we don't disbelieve them out of reaction, just reject everything our senses tell us. You know, the Buddha was talking about the middle way, the way of mindful receptivity of what is. You know, mindfully receiving sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and you know, mental impressions. You know, not just indulging or denying. So, you know, the flavors the tongue receives, we investigate what is the impact and what decisions do we make based on that. Some flavours are just so intoxicating. You probably read some of the reports that are around about how uh, you know, the junk food that's manufactured, it's just there's a certain percentage of sugar and salt that they whack in there and it's going to have this chemical reaction on the body and you're going to want to eat more of it. You know, I read this one report about 
a company bought out a, um, an energy drink and it wasn't doing very well. It wasn't particularly interesting. They just banged in a whole lot more salt and sugar and suddenly the sales went up. Yeah, it was the same so-called sports drink or uh, energy tonic, but it, it changed the flavour. And uh, the senses are not necessarily wise if they haven't been tamed. Um, I think it was a, um, I think it was a BBC program that I saw some time ago. It pointed out their research revealed that. In nature, you never see fat and sugar together. For years, for decades, there's been arguments over which is the culprit, too much fat or too much sugar. And and these investigations revealed that that, uh, perhaps it's the combination that's the issue. Because in nature, you don't find fat and sugar together. But human beings, we combine them like in Glasgow, they have deep-fried Mars bars, apparently, which uh, sell very well. Well, I remember in Thailand, they have deep-fried sweet bananas. Uh, fortunately, here in our monastery, we're not allowed to have deep-fried food because it's a fire risk in the kitchen. But deep-fried sweet bananas, my memory is, once you start eating them, <laughs> you, you can't stop. They're so delicious. They just, you just want to have another one. And another one. Sometimes they put sesame seeds in the batter and you just want to keep eating these things. And they're outrageous. They should be illegal. <laughs> it just The senses say you have more, but it really doesn't, doesn't work. We all know this. We need to do something more than that. If we're defined by our uninspected reaction to sense stimulus, which that cat unfortunately was, we behave in unintelligent uh, ways that don't lead to our benefit. And, yeah, the same, uh, yeah, well, we know what it's like when a, a wound is healing and you want to scratch it, but we have that faculty which can potentially rise above it. So, yeah, it feels like that. Well, I have a really good scratch, but you know, last time you did that, you got reinfected, and so you inhibit it skillfully, hopefully. Now, if we don't do it skillfully, what we do is we just flip to the other side. Instead of indulging, we go into denying, and so we just grit our teeth. I'm not going to scratch, I'm not going to scratch, I'm not going to scratch. I do not want to scratch. We start lying to ourselves. That's what denial is. We lie to ourselves. You can only do that for so long before you get the backlash. I read a book that somebody gave me about these fellows who were doing a round-the-world solo circumnavigation on yachts. And one of these participants uh, thought that he could pull a fast one and just went a little bit out, not too far out into the Atlantic, and just went round and round in circles, staying perfectly safe, and figured, well, he'd just do that for a few weeks or a few months, and and then pop on in ahead of all the others and win the competition. But what it looks very much like was that he couldn't live with himself and his dishonesty, and he ended up jumping overboard and took his life. 
lying to ourselves is intolerably painful. We might feel like we get away with it for a while, but it becomes intolerable. Mm. So uh, the reaction of lying to us, I do not want to scratch, I do not want to... It doesn't work, that's not intelligent. What's smart, what's clever is to, yeah, I really want to scratch. Own it. Yeah, I really want to eat more food. The sound of that music, I really want to turn it up. I really really want to turn it up loud. But if we've got sufficient intelligence, which potentially we do, none of you'll damage your ears if you turn up the volume too much. Or you'll overeat and suffer the consequences of obesity. So with regards to the senses and the sense objects, we need to exercise this potential we have of wise reflection. And the sixth sense organ, that is the mind, we've got the five physical sense organs and sense objects, and then the sixth one, which is the mind itself, the sense objects are the thoughts and feelings, the mental activity, the mental impressions. And, and perfectly normal, this is what human minds do, we think. But if we haven't been careful and heedful in the way we relate to our thinking, we get lost in it. And for some people, thinking becomes so compulsive that they can't stop thinking. And the experience is that if I stop thinking, I'll disappear. For a lot of people, when they start meditating, they have that unfortunate perception May even strong, maybe may even be strong enough to cause them to turn away from meditation. The, the fear of disappearing, to stop thinking, or, yeah. or the feelings that we have. You know, I was talking a minute ago about you know, somebody with a mental illness insults you, and you know, we get caught up in a painful feeling as a result. But as soon as we realise that actually that person is unwell and there's nothing they say is reliable, becomes a non-issue. Well, why did we make it an issue in the first place? Well, because of the way we perceive our feelings. We worry, all of us, I'm sure know, that we worry so much. You know, have I upset this person? You know, lose sleep over it? And you know, Shall I try and ask them? Say, oh, no, they'll get offended and even get more hurt until we can't stand it any longer and we... We find an occasion to have a conversation. They, they even didn't even notice. They forgot. We even had a conversation, let alone got upset about it. It meant nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, the example that's given in the scriptures is, is where you're walking along a track and you, you see what you think is a snake and you, you get overwhelmed with fear. You're, you're frightened for your life. Lose your life because of a snake on the path, and and then you find out that it's a, a an old bit of rope that somebody left there, and the fear disappears. And, uh, so the activity of our hearts and minds, if we don't have a skillful relationship to them, can turn what is potentially certainly okay, or even potentially very beautiful, into something quite terrifying and regrettable. So this is, we're encouraged in this path of practice to study, to get wise, to get smart, 
and our relationship to the senses and sense objects. Mm. So part of the study also involves mm, investigating the stories that we create. Because not all stories that our minds have created are unhelpful. Human animals are very complicated and there's so many of us and learning to cooperate, it's understandable that we invent stories that help us cooperate, like money. In that book, Sapiens, dealt with very skillfully the the belief and the myth of money, how the evolution of the myth and, and how we we really invest a huge amount into money and how it makes cooperation a lot easier if we all agree on money and what money means. In reality, that bit of paper, uh, it's just a bit of paper. These days it's plastic. In reality, it's just a bit of plastic with some ink on it or if it's a credit card. Ultimately, what we call money uh, is an idea. Or well, these days, it's you know, Bitcoin is becoming a big thing. Whether Bitcoin will last or not, who knows? But certainly, the technology that it operates on, blockchain technology, is unless something very, very odd happens, it's it's not going back in the box. You know, computers have been invented, the internet has been invented, uh, the activity of blockchain technology is is uh, been articulated and. It's happening, yeah, and it has a big impact on the world, and particularly on the world of economy and trading and transaction. It is a convenient story. However, what happens is we invest too much in it. Having a conversation with somebody who's somewhat of an expert in the field and was talking about how many people are over-investing in Bitcoin and, and getting totally caught up in it. It's not because of the reality of Bitcoin. It's what we project onto it. So we have these stories which can be very functional, but they become dysfunctional. Why? Because we don't really understand them. We haven't really studied them. We define ourselves in terms of how much money we've got. This is one of the little contributions that Buddhist monks and nuns can, can make to the world because we don't have any personal money. And not even allowed to handle it you know, or own it. Uh, but for most people, it is a very defining uh, aspect of their lives. It's not because of the story. The story can be very functional. But because of what we project onto it, we don't really understand the story. Uh, mental processes. The mental processes themselves are perfectly normal. Like all the other sense objects, the sights and sounds and smells and touches, they're all perfectly just what they are. But when they impact on the sense organ, in this case the mind, if we don't really see clearly, we create a drama, we create a deluded drama that spoils things. The way we relate to the passions, indignation. As I've spoken about before, you know, like our immune system, which rejects foreign bodies that threaten to destroy our well-being, you know, 
our consciousness can feel aversion towards that which offends human decency, that which offends that which is wholesome. Abuse, when we see abuse, whether it's human beings being abused or or human beings abusing the planet, the unskillful, unwise, rampant greed, uh, abuse of the planet, polluting the waters, destroying the forests, it's understandable that uh, the heart feels aversion towards that. It's a natural and suitable response to something unwholesome happening. However, again, as we would all know, that because of an uninformed relationship with aversion, there tends to be clinging. Just as we cling to the other sense objects, tastes and sights and sounds and smells, we cling to this experience of aversion and we turn it into hatred. How unfortunate. Then we become just another one of the abusers on the planet, hurting ourselves and hurting others. And what can we do about it? Well, again, I was mentioning the meal this morning, and as we've spoken about many times before, the Buddha alerted us to this possibility of cultivating the spiritual faculties. It's not just eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body sensations that we have. We also have these faculties, these spiritual faculties, Sadha, Virya, Sati, Samadhi, Panya. We have the option of cultivating the capacity for trusting, wise trusting, or faith. We have the option of generating spiritual energy, enthusiasm. We have the option of cultivating mindfulness, an alertness, a presence, which means we're just not—we're not just reacting like an unintelligent cat or dog or uh, other pet uh, uh, that interferes with the healing. Uh, we have the option of steadying attention, you know, samadhi, uh, uh, steadying the mind so that the quality of attention becomes more potentized, as with light. You know, you concentrate it, it becomes a different dynamic, same element. Yeah. Concentrated light can do different things from diffused light. And then we have the option of cultivating discernment. And then the Buddha gave us these meditation techniques, these spiritual exercises, so we can become conscious of these spiritual faculties. Faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, discernment. Being conscious of them, engage them. And then we find, wonderfully, we discover for ourselves, not just because we read a book uh, and figured it out. It doesn't work like that. We can read all sorts of books but still go running after rainbows and mirages and turning the volume up too loud on our listening device and ruining relationships out of unnecessary worry, anxiety and fear. But if we exercise the training of the spiritual faculties, 
You know, we start to see we can see in different ways, see in new ways. We can see with the clarity that comes with a presence of mindfulness. Or we can embrace an experience of frustration, trusting in the power of healing. You know, the apparent reality is, I've really got to engage this worrying thought. It's just like an itch. I've just got to get in there and worry some more and worry some more and worry some more. And If we've got the counterforce of the capacity for trusting and in, in healing, the healing power of faith, you know, faith in real reality, faith in Dhamma, if we have some actual experience of that, we inhibit the inclination to scratch the itch of worry. And we can wait. And miraculously, we find, after all, we forgot about the worry. How could that happen? At the time when the worry was possessing me, I thought it was the most important thing in the world. Or like, I remember, I still remember vividly when I stopped smoking. My addiction to smoking was a really unfortunate habit. Tobacco leaves are potentized by uh, impregnating them with ammonia so that it cuts the organism and the nicotine goes in and we become addicted more quickly. Uh, We become enslaved and manipulated by the manufacturers of cigarettes and, and once you're addicted to nicotine, it's a very difficult one to habit to break and, and I can remember vividly the time where I wanted a cigarette thinking if I can't have a cigarette I just I just I just no, I just can't stand it I just absolutely can't stand it that's the thought that appears when our addictions are frustrated like these days similar with the social media specifically designed to give you a dopamine hit so you feel like if I don't check my smartphone now something terrible is going to happen in other words, it's anxiety producing. And it's specifically designed that way. Or like the chemicals that get put into junk food. They're specifically designed that way you know, to make us crave. And, uh, on the occasion of my giving up smoking, I, I used the trick of trusting in restraint. And so I made the determination, trusting the power of determination, well, I'll have to wait 10 minutes every time I want a cigarette. And so I did. I'd want a cigarette, look at the clock, wait 10 minutes, have a cigarette. And then one day, much to my surprise, 20 minutes passed before I remembered I actually wanted a fag. Wow, what happened there? I mean, at the time I wanted it, I thought, "This this is absolutely impossible. I cannot not have a cigarette. That's what it appeared to be. The reality was I forgot about it in a few minutes and took 20 minutes before I remembered. That was helpful. In other words, the con of the senses and the sense objects was revealed. So cultivating these spiritual faculties according to what the Buddha was encouraging us to do gives us the possibility of rising above the apparent reality. We don't have to go chasing after rainbows and chasing after mirages. And most importantly, 
the apparent reality of this apparition called me, this phenomenal happening called me in my way, which is so dominant in our lives. We get so driven by it, almost completely driven by it. We develop the faculties, they have the ability to question. It looks like this. It looks like the most important thing, but maybe it isn't that way. We can rise above it, inhibit it, and not be driven by its force. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.